All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the third of four uh, lectures in the Terra Lecture Series, uh, Terra Series for American Art. Um, I'm Miguel Debaca, and today is Modernism Disfigured, Cult and Illicit Ritual in New Mexico in the Works of Georgia O'Keeffe and Martha Graham, or Everything You Could Possibly Ever Want in a Lecture Title. Uh, so we'll see if the lecture measures up. Um, I would like to dedicate this lecture to my first academic mentor, Wanda Korn. Georgia O'Keeffe is one of the most celebrated American artists. And of American artists who are women, certainly the most famous. She enjoyed outstanding success during her lifetime, was the subject of the Museum of Modern Art's very first retrospective dedicated to a woman in 1946, was beloved throughout the turbulent 1960s, and achieved the pinnacle of her fame in the 1970s as a symbol for the growing women's movement. She is virtually synonymous with her lush, suggestive flower paintings conceived and articulated with such personality and force that it is impossible for any artist to have painted a flower in the last century without O'Keeffe's example present in mind. But not just flowers. As the only woman in the inner sanctum of a group of modern artists surrounding the photographer Alfred Stieglitz, who was also her husband, she lived in Manhattan and took its dramatic skyline as her subject in the 1920s. O'Keeffe's enduring success resides in the fact that she imparts to us ways of seeing that we didn't know were inside of us, not buildings, but the jagged spaces in between them, not electric streetlights, but their dappled incandescence as imprinted on our sight. O'Keeffe's city stretches seeing into something akin to feeling, not eyesight, but eyeball, not the lens, but the finger and the hand. Georgia O'Keeffe is also synonymous with New Mexico and potentially the entire American Southwest. She first journeyed there in 1929, aged 41, only to settle there permanently in the late 1940s. At first, she painted adobe churches and American Indian dolls. But over time, it was really the bleached bones that she collected from the high desert floor that captivated her. Cow, mule, and deer skulls and pelvic bones. These objects were not culturally specific, blank slates for her to add them, add to them whatever perspective she wished. And that she did. The red, white, and blue motif in Cow's skull may retrospectively seem to us to be effusively patriotic. To the artist, however, the word patriotic might not have made as much sense as the word essence. The New York modernists believed that there was an authenticity of the American spirit worth pursuing, an esprit de corps which would separate it once and for all 
from Europe. O'Keefe gave the object of this pursuit a name, the great American thing, and it is very well possible that she had become the greatest American painter of her generation. If the title of this lecture series is The Body of a Nation, then the key word for this lecture is gender. It is very well documented that O'Keeffe's gender was highlighted by critics right from the start, the women must of course paint flowers problem, but that she continued despite this misunderstanding of her work. Stieglitz's photographs of O'Keeffe's body, or I guess I should say body parts, are similarly well known and studied and produce an idea of an artist whose identification with her bodily femaleness is all but unquestioned. To take a tiny conceptual jump, we might ask, what did it mean for O'Keeffe to relocate to, Me to New Mexico? What was its body like vis-a-vis -vis hers? What were its genders? As we shall see, the question is complex. O'Keeffe was not the only modern artist, male or female, to come from the East Coast to the American Southwest, looking for the great American thing. By the late 19th century, northern New Mexico was a must-see on what we might call the domestic grand tour, made accessible by a vast and ever-expanding railroad. The southern route did not afford travelers as much of the dramatic verticality of the Rockies, nor comforts of gold rush cities like Denver en route to the San Francisco Bay. Instead, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad darted through the flats of Kansas and eastern Colorado, careening into the hilly terrain southwest through Santa Fe and Albuquerque, past arid, flat-topped mountains called mesas and sudden drop canyons, and then down into the blistering Mojave Desert as it lurched toward the growing port of Los Angeles. No Hollywood, no Beverly Hills, just figs, lemons, and beans. In 1884, the journalist Charles Lummis popularized New Mexico in an adventurous series of articles called Tramp Across the Continent. Finding himself restless at his desk of a small town newspaper in Ohio, Lummis accepted an assignment at the recently established Los Angeles Times to walk the 3,000 miles from Cincinnati to Los Angeles. Under the pretense of wanting to get back into shape after years of white collar work, he knew the publicity stunt would bring him a national reputation. East Coast readers would have been sympathetic to the pseudoscientific cognitive impairment known as brain fag, known to afflict middle-class white men, not women, and its remedy found in getting back into nature. The American painter Thomas Aikens, for instance, was an avid proponent of remasculinization through homosocial contact in the great outdoors. And already the West was known to be a rough and rugged place ideal for toughening up the overworked professional. To externalize and make plain the evidence of his cure, 
Lummis narrated his transformation into a bona fide frontiersman over the months of his sojourn. He told readers that he traded his breeches for the buckskin leggings of an Apache dude. He wore a skunk pelt, a six-shooter strapped to his waist, and a Mexican sombrero to which he affixed a dried rattlesnake skin. Before arriving at the Laguna Pueblo on Christmas Day to witness a native dancing festival, Lummis trapped and killed a coyote, skinned it, and stuffed it with straw, which he wore as a shawl to impress the locals. One can only imagine the sight of him, outfitted to the hilt in his imaginary native costume, in the audience of what he described to the readers back home as a corn dance. In fact, if it were a corn dance in December, then the audience may well have been mostly white and the performance mostly theatrical. The ceremonial corn dance, an important holiday on the Southwest native calendar, occurs in August. The fantastical and symbolic representation of indigeneity in American art goes back at least to the 18th century. Since the Indian removal policy of 1830, though, the visual motifs governing natives had largely been set forth in the figure of the noble savage, a physically and mentally strong American type resigned to his fate in acquiescing to the encroachment of a more technologically capable white civilization. Thus relegated to the historical past tense, the docile and contemplative Indian, both male and female, was a favorite subject for artists, arranged part portrait, part still life with pots and rugs. Without any question, the spectacular Pueblos and the availability of Native American culture lured white travelers to New Mexico, but that was not the only cultural encounter at work. Indeed, white American contact with Hispanics in the Southwest was broadly unfamiliar, at the furthest remove from the tropes of recognizable Spanishness that they might have known. Hispanic people were enigmas fitting somewhere between white European ally and alien enemy. This is where Lummis steps in again, because he was among the first to solidify a gendered motif of Hispanic identity in New Mexico for the sake of his white readers. In 1888, he was living in the village of San Mateo, New Mexico, in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, when he first heard of the unorthodox rituals of the Hermanos de la Fraternidad Piadosa de nuestro, nuestro Padre Jesús Nazareno, in English, the brothers of the pious fraternity of our father, Jesus of Nazareth. These penitentes, as they were known, are secretive, lay religious, fraternal organizations that served the spiritual needs of Hispanic Roman Catholics in the remote stretches of country where priests did not live. Each Lent, the penitentes came out of secrecy to perform the Passion of Christ. After saying Good Friday prayers, 
in their private one-room meeting house called the Morada. The brothers proceeded along the path to a clearing called the Calvario or the Calvary site, using horsehair whips to beat themselves into penance. At this clearing, other penances were enacted, including beating cactus needles into their flesh with stones. The climax of the ceremony was a crucifixion, nailing the live body of a penitent to a wooden cross called a madero. Already by the time Lemus arrived, the high stakes of death in these ceremonies were known to white settlers and widely discouraged, if not outlawed. So to deter attention, penitentes began to use ropes to affix the body to the cross instead of nails. But no matter, the bloody Lenten ritual already crystallized the identity of Hispanic vernacular religion and thus characterized the severity, danger, mystery, and yes, masculinity of the American Southwest to which it pertained. Lummis wrote up his story, produced a portfolio of photographs, which I've shown you, and published his account in Cosmopolitan magazine in May 1889. From that moment, the penitente rituals, objects of worship, and meeting houses became an intense focus for outsiders seeking an authentic experience of New Mexico. Here's a larger view. By World War I, there were enough white artists living in northern New Mexico to warrant the establishment of several ateliers. One was called the Cinco Pintores, five painters in Santa Fe, and the other was the Taos Society of Artists in the more rural mountainous area just north. Taos was an especially attractive place to paint. Here's a map for you. So here's Santa Fe, and then here's Taos. Here's the Colorado border. Um, yes, Taos was an especially attractive place to paint, owing to its proximity to Indian settlements and the local penitente meeting houses that made access to the two exotic cultures especially convenient. These painters, all male, presented penitente subject matter in a literal way. For instance, William Penhallow Henderson's Holy Week in New Mexico Penitente Procession of 1919 relies on a dynamic sense of line and a bright palette to convey the Good Friday exercises. The mountain and wild hills in the background conspire with an obtrusive sagebrush plant in the foreground to compress the central action into a tight and partially occluded strip, the arduous path to the Calvario. Such compression gives the sense of density and chaos among the participating actors, but the shallow zone at the bottom edge of the painting ultimately separates the viewer from the ceremony. Henderson renders the brothers' flesh in the same brown tones as the earth, solidifying a relationship between the penitentes and their land of origin. 
By focusing exclusively on the Good Friday crucifixion, these uninvited onlookers missed the nuances of the ceremony and mischaracterized them as a spectacularly affirmative masculine blood sport. A penitente object less frequently depicted, but one that I argue is a key spectral presence lingering behind these artists' powerful fascination with the Southwest is this, the death cart. Although the use of portable objects in religious plays, or pasos in Spanish, has its roots in medieval Spain, the death cart dates to about 1860, is unique to this region, and has a ritual rather than a didactic function. During the performance, the elected penitente brother attached the heavy chassis to his torso with a rope and dragged it from the meeting house to the Calvary site. This cottonwood chassis, as you can see, supported and partially enclosed a wooden statue called La Muerte, presented as either denuded or dressed in women's robes. La Muerte is curiously the only female body presiding over this secret fraternal ritual and is alluringly occult. The significance of La Muerte is obscure. In penitente communities, she is referred to as Nuestra Comadre Sebastiana, which means our godmother Sebastiana, or La Doña Sebastiana, Lady Sebastiana. The title Comadre separates her from La Madre, or the mother, to emphasize her difference from the Holy Mother, Virgin Mary, who avoided early death according to Roman Catholic dogma. Mary's whole body and soul entered heaven at the end of her life and thus cannot appear as skeletal remains. The name Sebastiana is a female declension of the male Saint Sebastian, who is frequently depicted as martyred by arrows. By contrast, Doña Sebastiana carries a wooden bow strung with sinew, suggesting her agency as the archer rather than as the victim. Taken together with her macabre appearance, one may assume that her arrows represent the arbitrariness of the moment of death. In Spanish and Latin American traditions, it is relatively common to see Good Friday pageants involving likenesses of venerated saints. But what sets the death cart apart is its mobilization as a form of penance. Indeed, the live body of the male worshiper became the physical target in the death cart performance, forcing his body into submission. The penitent would have faced away from the erect La Muerte, accepting a prone position, and harnessed his torso to the chassis with a horsehair rope, which you see here in front. Assuming the weight of the female statue, the penitent dragged it along the path, causing bleeding around the clavicle and shoulders. Thus, the death cart literally entered the penitent's body, intensifying the sense of his own human mortality, which the grisly aesthetic of La Muerte also compactly signifies. Her presence also potently suggests the reversal 
of the usual penetrative agency, that is, the penitent's will to enact punishment against his own body, is theatricalized by his submission to a female agent. Thus, we cannot definitively understand this entire spectacle of masochism as essentially masculine, but rather as an example of the incoherence of our expectations of masculinity. The brother's desire to obtain the usually feminized qualities of passivity and bodiliness in the elusive quest for their spiritual transcendence. I submit that these white artists' inability to visualize the death cart was in turn of a fantasy to identify themselves as participants in their own exclusive brotherhood, similar to the one they depicted. A fantasy that did not consciously imagine an assertive presence of the feminine. The bonds established by these artists in a presumptively alien and yet fully colonized place reinforced a new sense of their masculinity, one that traded on the preeminently physical model of manhood understood to be at the core of the penitentes rituals. And this new masculinity also perceived itself to be unstintingly modern. These men entertained powerful narcissistic dreams of originality that were at the root of their desires to paint in New Mexico. What we as viewers see is a spectacle of masculine strength corroborated by the privileged artist who simultaneously aspires to authenticity but remains unapologetically at an arm's length. O'Keefe arrived in New Mexico in 1929, undoubtedly enchanted by the mysticism of the region, still dancing in the imagination of East Coast artists 40 years after Lummis's original popularization. By then, Native Americans had more readily opened their pueblos to tourists, and the commercial plazas in the Spanish town squares, especially in Santa Fe, bustled with a vigorous trade in handwoven blankets, furnishings, and wood-carved religious figures called santos to be used as home decor. To some, like the artist Stuart Davis, New Mexico held little in the way of its promised allure of rustic authenticity. His electric bulb New Mexico, for instance, revels in disappointment. Similarly, in 1928, the journalist Paul Rosenfeld, a friend of Alfred Stieglitz's, disparaged the poor audience of neurotic whites and half-poets, his words, congregated to watch the native dancing. But to many more, of course, New Mexico remained a romantic utopia, including to O'Keeffe, who described in no uncertain terms her feeling for the place, a feeling that lasted throughout her life. I do think, though, that her experience of New Mexico and her desire to express it was of a different flavor. Unlike Lummis, she already had a professional reputation and did not to need to respond to those pressures. Unlike the all-male artist colonies in Santa Fe and Taos, she arrived with more progressive notions of art, particularly abstraction, 
emerging from a heady transatlantic exchange in New York. Perhaps most significantly, her first view of New Mexico was seen through the frame of the modernist community assembled by the exciting and eccentric figure of Mabel Dodge Lujan. The restless heiress to a banking fortune, Lujan traveled to Europe in the years before the war and socialized at Gertrude Stein's famous salon with the likes of Pablo Picasso and other early French abstractionists. She lived in Paris, then Florence, then New York, where she became a fixture in the Bohemian Greenwich Village, and then the artist colony at Provincetown, Massachusetts. She then went west to Santa Barbara, California, a charming city perched on the Pacific coast, and finally settled in Taos, New Mexico, in 1917, purchasing a tract of land with an ample home, which she immediately set about to fashion into an artist's retreat. Over the years, Lujan's Taos colony attracted scores of writers, poets, photographers, and painters now fixed in the American modernist pantheon. D.H. Lawrence, Willa Cather, Thornton Wilder, Marsden Hartley, Ansel Adams, just to name a few, and of course, Georgia O'Keeffe. In her first summer at Lujan's retreat, O'Keeffe saw the awesome sights that inspired others before her. Quiet mountain terrain, the Taos Pueblo with its colorful festivals and distinctively shaped Church of San Jerónimo, the 18th century adobe Rancho's Church of San Francisco de Asís, which seemed eminently suited to modernist abstract sensibilities, and an endless array of Hispanic and native material culture objects. She also knew about the presence of the penitentes, since Lujan's backyard looked out over a vast terrain, including Penitente Mederos and a small meeting house. O'Keefe later recalled. One evening, we walked to the back of the Morada toward a cross in the hills. I was told it was a Penitente cross. The cross was large enough to crucify a man. It was in the late night and the cross stood out, dark against the evening sky. Black Cross with Stars in Blue is one of four paintings of crosses O'Keeffe painted during her first summer in Taos. The authoritative central cross shatters the painting into four uneven quadrants, two upper zones of twilight sky and two lower ones admitting a view of sky, mountains, and the land beyond. The boundaries between the cross and the sky wave and bend an organic form. Elsewhere, O'Keeffe mentioned that this suite of paintings, and here you can see another, the commanding Black Cross New Mexico, with their prominently placed crosses, evokes the pervasive Catholicism of the region, linking it to her painting of the Rancho's church, which we've also seen. But Black Cross is far more compelling than what the artist describes. These paintings meditate deeply on the theme of fracture. 
They allude to a broken but absent body through abstract zones permanently divided into four corners by the monolithic cruciform. The artist's words, large enough to crucify a man, reveal the painting's key omission, which is the male body that previously acted as the point of identification for other artists willing to establish their own initiation into the world of the savage. Thus, O'Keeffe's vision is that the experience of extremity, encapsulated both by the ritual and the usual representation of it, could be suggested simply through form. Her sensuous imagery of inexact rectangles and undulating hills legitimate a feeling of intense corporeality without having to represent an anatomy to complete the picture. By the way, you can stay here. It's about $200. I stayed in this room, which was the room of the writer Mary Austin, and it is totally thrilling, so you must do it. What Lujan's colony signified to O'Keeffe, to O'Keeffe's introduction to New Mexico, was a community within the Southwest held apart from the usual context of masculine authority. Many of the visitors to Lujan's colony were women traveling alone or with other women. Georgia O'Keeffe, for instance, made her first trip with her friend, the painter Rebecca Strand, whose letters reveal the developing romantic affair between them. Lujan, who was bisexual and a proponent of free love, made her home a welcoming place for such awakenings. More to the point, she encouraged women to find an unburdened locale for their work and life to flourish. Perhaps sensing this, the male author Jean Toomer, who was also a guest, wrote tongue-in-cheek of what he called the female fascism he found in Taos. Strong, resourceful women who like the starkness and isolation of this country. But O'Keeffe liked New Mexico enough to follow Lujan's example, to buy land there, to make her studio there, apart from New York and well apart from Stieglitz. Despite falling in line with the privileges of whiteness and money that enabled such New Mexican enchantments to seem so real, the Taos colony still operated in distinction to the ubiquity of masculine significance assumed of the American Southwest. Must we know about the Penitentes to appreciate O'Keeffe's Black Cross paintings? Perhaps not. But I think they are made more arresting and abundant when we see the complete picture of the commonly held gendered determinations of New Mexico at a critical moment in the development of American modernism. To round out this discussion, I would like to bring an additional artist into the fore. Martha Graham. The history of modernism, and one might say the history of Western art, has not been cozy with the history of dance. Surely some motifs prevail. One might think of the vibrant cabaret culture in the late 19th century or uh, in Paris, 
or Edgar Degas' obsession with ballet dancers. But the scholarship there is less concerned with choreography and more concerned with the changing nature of the audience and spectatorship, the gaze, framing, point of view, you know, history of art stuff. In the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st, the explosion of performance art grew out of a newfound embrace of everyday movements first appearing in the severe, pared-down aesthetic of modern dance. One wonders if this is because more men were visible on stage more frequently. Men who also happened to make history of art stuff like paintings and sculptures. And to this, we must acknowledge that among the performing arts, dance is difficult to describe after you see it. Unlike a play, there are usually no words. Unlike music, no score. Sound is integral to dance, but it is not the dance, not a body alighting and landing turning, breathing. However, dance, when and where we can see it, can provide an important nuance and supply compelling examples to us for still images. If one person transformed the history of Western dance, it was Martha Graham. Her trailblazing technique eschewed point work, which you see here, where ballerinas move on their tiptoes across the stage, as well as pas de dieu lifts. Each dancer, male and female, was expected to muscle their own way across the stage. Graham also tended not to favor vaudevillian costuming or elaborate sets, which separated her from popular entertainment. Instead, Graham innovated and taught her company a method of stylized breathing, which she married to movements based on quotidian body postures. The idea was to infuse each danced motion with intense emotion, while at the same time appearing relatably human. An entire day in the Graham studio might be spent laughing or wailing or even spitting, connecting the body to the feelings. The breathing exercise originates in the abdomen, in the fusiform muscle that connects the pelvis to the spine. And for that reason, Graham's dancers practiced breath while splayed out on the floor with the legs radiating out from an opened groin. Breath is the beginning of movement. So not like yoga in which you breathe in order to connect one still pose to another, but a contraction that pushes movement energetically outward. Thus to audiences accustomed to ballet and transitional ballroom dancing, the resulting motion seems inelegant and sudden. Graham plotted her convulsive movement style onto narrative structures to which she felt a particularly strong gravity and which especially befit the psychology of agony and pain. 
as an early dance in her repertoire. El Penitente of 1940 is an experiment in the movement vocabulary that later became her signature choreography. Like O'Keefe, Graham was also a friend of Mabel Dodge Lujan and visited Taos regularly between 1918 and 1937. And like O'Keefe, too, Graham developed an intense feeling for New Mexico, attracted especially to what she called its ferocity. She would have witnessed the same litany of tourist attractions, the mountains, the pueblos, the native dances, the market squares packed with pots and rugs. But unlike O'Keefe, a painter, Graham, as a dancer, held one site in esteem above the others, the penitentes. Within the Brotherhood's performance of the Passion of Christ, Graham focused her gaze on the one object that had elsewhere disappeared from representation, the figure of female difference, the death cart. What is remarkable to me about Graham's El Penitente is how specifically Graham aligned her method with narrative in a way that reveals the choreographer's physical understanding of the Brotherhood's rituals. For instance, in the first suite of the dance, the character of the penitent, danced by Graham's lover, Eric Hawkins, enacts a physical blow to the body, emulating the movement of self flagellation. This movement is accompanied by the dancer's forceful expiration of breath, and this is more than mere theatrics. The dancer's body convulses in anguish, contracting his breath as prescribed in the grand method. And the same gesture is expressed in a later suite when the penitent has a delirious vision of Christ, danced by Merce Cunningham. As Christ thrusts his left arm outward, the penitent aspirates again, falling to the stage floor. Throughout the dance, Graham choreographed her dancers' bodies into right angles and cross or X-like formations, such as repeating jumping jack movements that extend the body to its Vitruvian proportions. The movements are highly stylized, of course, but the emotion is evident. As we have learned, the masculine experience of the penitential rites had been explored pictorially by artists in Santa Fe and Taos. Graham, however, was the very first to imagine the penitente rituals via the exploration of female protagonists. First, consider that while Hawkins and Cunningham remain stable in their characterizations of the penitent and the imaginary Christ, respectively, Graham begins the dance by identifying herself with the wooden La Muerte inside the death cart, changing her role to Virgin Mary, Eve, and Mary Magdalene throughout the course of the dance. While male identity is fixed in El Penitente, female identity shifts, punisher, intercessor, temptress, saint, indicating a more complex and independent state of being. In effect, 
As a result of her interaction with the death cart, Graham identified her own body as the disruptive agent at the center of a highly self-consciously gendered performance. Now, on the one hand, her fantastical imagining of La Muerte as incarnations of other biblical figures diverges from the penitente belief, but on the other, it restores the importance of feminine presence to the crisis of masculine embodiment implied by the original rites. The death cart appears as the object of difference in Graham's work, signifying special otherness within a ritual appropriated precisely for its exotic appeal. As we know by now, these issues must be parsed delicately because the representations of the Penitente Brotherhood are deeply entwined with colonialist expectations to find imagined bounty belonging to the primitive other, as we have seen in certain other artist quarters in modernist New Mexico. Despite her sincerest affinities for the material culture of the Penitentes, Graham is not unsusceptible to bias. It should rightly seem that her borrowing of La Muerte as one of her many masks points out her privileged position as a bourgeois heterosexual white woman and troublingly elides a fuller picture of the original religious culture of the Hispanic Southwest. And yet, there is something also appealingly brazen about Graham's excessive presence in El Penitente, something plentiful in the way her body moves to the very boundary of anatomical possibility that unbalances the patriarchal subject as the paradigm of control. Like Georgia O'Keeffe, Graham found New Mexico to be a vital place away from New York in which she could extend her practice and perfect her technique. Like O'Keeffe, she found a community of nonconformist women in Mabel Dodge Lujan's artist colony. The American dance world, including ballet for that matter, was already a predominantly female homosocial space in which women were encouraged, encouraged to explore their sexuality, including intimately with other women. It was also a place where sexual equality took on political expression in socialism, which is a topic vastly underexplored in the literature. Graham was neither a lesbian nor a socialist, but she prioritized the cultivation of a community within her studio that disrupted the sexual norms of the world outside. For our purposes today, El Penitente describes a fascinating reintroduction of the death cart into a modern cultural discourse that had repressed it. By visualizing the brotherhood, white artists in the Southwest established their practice at the edge of the periphery, emulating their occult mysticism as a metaphor for the avant-garde rejection of normal civilization. By working to her own aesthetic, O'Keeffe resisted collapsing into the purely primitive, although Black Cross depends to some extent on the viewer's connection to an existing Christian iconography in order to surprise its regular meanings. Similarly, Graham deployed penitente rituals and objects to establish a movement vocabulary based on her own body. To all of these artists under discussion today, 
the death cart, and indeed the entire rich folkloric tradition of the penitentes, represented a special contingency at the threshold of identity, the allure of the subversive, and the dangerous and enduring appeal of the body as a pathway to self-knowledge. One final consideration. In the 1930s, both O'Keefe and Graham used their sojourns in the Southwest as a springboard for further identification as an American, their great American thing, to use O'Keefe's enduring phrase. O'Keefe, as you will remember, laid to the side her original fascinations with Native American dolls and Hispanic churches, preferring instead to work with sun-bleached bones. In doing so, she could investigate the formal connections of geometry and space that were at the crux of her modernism without the typical primitivist and, as I think we can see here now, uh, masculinizing fascinations. When looking at Cow's skull of 1931, the color scheme of red, white, and blue might seem embarrassingly nationalistic, maybe too overt or too anxious to appear at the center of American culture. Similarly, Martha Graham's relentlessly affirmative American document of 1938, a dance preceding El Penitente, was an early collage of stage suites set to the spoken text of the Declaration of Independence, the Emancipation Proclamation, Walt Whitman's poetry, and the Bible. Graham apparently was aiming her dance at the urgent political need to galvanize the American people's resolve on the brink of a war in Europe. Let us think about this a different way, a way that comprehends these artists' posterity. O'Keefe gifted Cow's skull to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1976, where it is to this day on view, enshrined as a jewel of American modernism. Graham, too, looked back to her original dances and reworked American document for a new premiere in 1989. The intervening years saw traumatic world wars, the upheaval and still incomplete promise of civil rights, the assassination of Martin Luther King and the women's movement. Going forward into the 1990s, we find a retrenchment into conservatism, militarization, and the consolidation of corporate global power under the guise of neoliberalism. Thus, throughout the 20th century, the question of who, which genders, which ethnicities, belong within the American body only intensified and emboldened, but stands unresolved. The question of belonging to a place within that democracy, the land of the free and home of the brave, a nation that withholds as much as it promises, was the same one confronted by Georgia O'Keeffe and Martha Graham 80 years ago. Is the question really so out of date. Thank you.